Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers. Now on RTE Radio 1, time to hand over to Ella McSweeney for this week's Countrywide. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal, bringing you expert commentary and analysis on what your future farm payments will look like. Good morning and welcome to Countrywide. Coming up for you this morning, Suzanne Campbell visits dairy food producers, the hidden scourge of domestic violence in rural Ireland, and we meet the friendliest, fluffiest sheep in the world. I'm Ella McSweeney and I'm in for Damien this morning. It's great to be with you. Now, whether you're a farmer with livestock or a non-farmer with a pet, your vet plays a vital role in the life of your animals. For many vets, it's a vocation. They wouldn't want to do anything else. But the job is increasingly coming with challenges. Well, the Irish Veterinary Council is responsible for regulating vets. Its new president is Vivian Duggan, an associate professor at UCD who specialises in horse medicine. I met her in the council offices in Dublin for a chat. So you're comfortable there? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, we're going to get started. I'm going to hit record on your microphone. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hit record here. And, yeah. and then it's just you to the camera. Hello, my name is Vivian Duggan. I'm you're here recording a, a, a piece about mental health and it does seem that there are an awful lot of pressures facing vets at the moment. I think there's. it's always been a profession in which there are significant stressors. We deal with very challenging cases, long hours. There are out-of-hours, you know, emergency requirements. We need to take care of animals. In general, it's a profession that has historically been associated with high levels of stress, but I think COVID has made that a 100 times worse. Uh, you know, you're out there trying to meet clients, trying to talk to them about their animals, trying to elicit information, but you're also having to socially distance and make sure that you're wearing your masks and, and so on. So, if, you know, with people self-isolating and people becoming sick, uh, that put great pressures again on rotas and the number of vets available to, to do the work that had to be done. In addition to that, we all know about the COVID puppies and, you know, the COVID pets. And so when people were spending more time at home, they were more inclined to uh, get a pet. And so there's been an absolute explosion in pet ownership over the last two years, which has added to the work that is required to be done by vets. Has there been a drop off? Are vets increasingly leaving the profession or not? There are. There is a concern about retention rates in general in the profession in that people come in uh, to the vet school having a certain uh, idea of what veterinary is. And then perhaps when they get out into practice, they may become a little bit disillusioned about what it actually entails and the stresses and so on. Um, that being said, I could... You know, so many of my colleagues and myself included would say there is nothing else that we want to do. This is, as you mentioned, a vocation and it's what it's what we do. It's what we love. It's an extremely rewarding, satisfying, fulfilling profession. It's just that conditions of work can be very difficult at times. So we're standing here in the uh, northeastern corner of Belfield campus part of the vet school 
um, is here. So we're walking across the yard towards the farm animal unit where we would see uh, cows and sheep that are ill or that require particular surgeries. We're coming in here now to uh, one of the um, equine rows of stables. I can smell um, the smell of horses. Indeed. <laughs> um, and you can see there are some students. Um, and so this, uh, this animal, for example, is a, a young thoroughbred mare who came in over the weekend uh, with a complaint of colic, which is just pain in the abdomen. And so she was treated over the weekend. They diagnosed her with an impaction, which means she was kind of just bunged up. And so that was treated over the weekend. And she is eating again now and and passing dung and and ready to go home. Yeah, she looks very happy. Yes. So if I'll just bring you down um, to the back. Uh, So we have a few small paddocks here where we can put the horses out to get some exercise. Um, if needs be, see the squirrel running across the fence there. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you can hear the N11 going yes, into Dublin City right. there behind us. Yes, and yes. We could be in the middle of the countryside you here. You could, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's funny. There's, there are many people who work on the Belfield campus that don't even know that the vet hospital exists here. The other big change in Ireland is the, the change from a traditional mixed practice of vets so two or three vets embedded in the community possibly intergenerational towards more corporate investment and ownership of vet practices is this is this a worry uh, from the point of view of the vet council or do you see it as beneficial to vets the landscape is absolutely changing and um, there are a number of what we call corporate practices now uh, operating in ireland And there isn't any hard and fast good evidence to say whether this is a good thing or a bad thing in terms of animal welfare or the public. Um, As you said, it's very, very different from um, the vets who would have been an absolute intricate part of the local community, um, living with their clients through the ups and downs of their lives. They really have developed a a trust of that vet. And as you say, it may be intergenerational, uh, where if you go into a corporate practice, you may see a different vet every time that you visit. But again, there's there's pluses and minuses to both of those. So that traditional vet living in the community, being on call 24-7, 365 days of the year, it's very uh, stressful, it's very long hours, it's exhausting, it's isolated and so on. And then the other extreme, you have the corporates, which are attracting quite a lot of our new young graduates because they do offer a better quality of life, you know, more time off, better rotas. There are those extremes of practices now, but what the council has to do is to ensure that it's still able to effectively regulate the practice of veterinary medicine from all of those types of practices. So we've come back into the stables here. And there's a horse been sedated, so I think it might be going to um, diagnostic imaging to have some imaging done. But uh, it's a very short-acting sedative, so, you know, it'll wake up out of it in half an hour and be absolutely fine again. And we're behind the horse, and it's been followed by about five different people. Are they all students? They're all students, okay. so they're all here. And some of them are veterinary nursing students, and some of them are veterinary medicine students. And you can hear from the sound of that horse's clip-clop that it's walking very slowly. Very slowly, a bit dragging its feet. So the horse is just being led in. A little bit reluctant, little bit reluctant to go. Reluctant. Fair enough, fair enough. A bit of coaxing, you can see uh, Sive, who's one of our wonderful yard staff, has come with a bucket of feed. 
and the horse is not too uh, drowsy not to to be tempted by that so he's gone in won't be allowed to eat it for fear that he might choke but uh, has enticed him in when I was about 12 I went to the Gaeltacht in a place called Bally David on the Dingle Peninsula and for three weeks I stayed on a dairy farm and I was absolutely entranced, out every morning at six o'clock, milking, uh, milking the cows, helping out the farmer. So from very, very early on, that's all I wanted to do. And who could blame her? Vivian Duggan there, President of the Veterinary Council of Ireland. And we wish her well in her term as President. Now, Derry is experiencing a tourism boom. Even before COVID hit back in 2020, the number of overnight stays more than doubled in six years and tourism spend rose by over 100%. Well, by 2025, the city is intent on becoming the top food destination on the island of Ireland, which is quite an ambition. Suzanne Campbell visited Derry to see how it is working. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning. Yes, I mean, Derry, it's more known for its music, its crack, its Nobel Prize winners like Seamus Heaney and John Hume, then food and farming. But that's really, really changing. And Derry City Council has created a food network called Legendary with this aim to make Derry the top food destination in the island of Ireland by 2025. And that's a big, big task, especially when you think of the really established towns and cities that that really put food to the forefront, like Kinsale, like Gold way like Waterford and it's it's a big journey so I wanted to see where they are on it and how they are using local farms and local producers so on a snowy morning last week up I drove to the hills of the Sparrow Mountains to got lost a little bit but we won't talk about that to Craigban Goat Farm a beautiful beautiful landscape and this this mountainy upland landscape also of course defines the farming there which is mainly sheep and this goat farm that I was visiting is also set to to yo or to lamb 350 yo's in a few weeks time so it really is sheep country and even though farmer Ryan Mortimer wanted to dairy farm as his career it's goats he's now milking and selling it to a local cheesemaker's Dart Mountain Farm Kevin and Julie there so I asked him firstly about the farm and how he almost accidentally got into milking goats farm started in 1947 when my grandfather bought it. Third generation farm here. And my father has been on it since. Traditionally beef and sheep farm. And since 2019 we had 53 sets of triplets on the farm and we didn't have the time to start bottle feeding 53 spare lambs so I got a couple of goats. I got five goats and they were 27 lambs that year. And then when the lambs came off the goats they still far too much milk so me and my brother Fergo approached Kevin to see if they were interested in buying some goat's milk and he said that he was really making the goat's cheese and would be interested so the following year then 2020 we started milking about 12 goats and now we're producing up to 400 litres a week. Wow and are you still farming the other livestock as well? Yes we're still farming there's 450 sheep to lamb now and we have about 25 cattle there as well. And which is the biggest enterprise financially and and the one you'd put most energy into is the goats? The most energy is into the goats, uh, uh, the most money into has probably went to the goats as well. The thing is, as you see where we live, we live on the side of a mountain, so it's not really feasible for dairy cattle out done a year in Australia. My placement year for Australia was done on a dairy farm, milking 1,100 cows. I always liked the idea of milking, but I couldn't milk cows here, so goats was the next option. So I started milking goats because you can keep them in, in a small area, they don't take as much grass and they can stay inside when the weather is bad, they don't have to go in and out and they take up a small area and also you can have big numbers, there's 120 goats here now. 
and there's only a couple of sheds. And you're supplying Dart Mountain Cheese, is that the only place it goes? Yeah, all Malka Burbages and Dominus going over to Dart Mountain Cheese to Kevin and Julie. We're happy with that. They collect here twice a week, a Monday and a Friday morning. It's working really well. So Kevin and Julie at Dart Mountain Cheese. It's just a couple of miles from the goat farm, named after a nearby hill. I then followed the milk over to their farm, and Kevin is a dairy man. Julie came to Queen's University from the US and has since made her life in dairy. They make several different types of really award-winning, really good cow's milk and goat's milk cheeses in a cheese room at the back of their house, which they've converted from an old stables. And this is the milk from the goats we were just at. Yep, these are from Craig Van Goat Farm. And it's great to get the milk so local, and they're obviously very committed to their goats. Yeah. Okay, so this is going to go into the pasteurizer. Yep. This is a vat that kind of does all things. I can pasteurize in here, and I can go ahead and make the cheese in here as well. Okay. We'll get loaded up here. <laughs> so, Kevin, you're going to pour it in? Yeah, we're just going to pour it in. And as the milk is poured, it is double served before we go into the cheese vat. That's a pour now. I'll dip the milk. I'll see what volume I have. And again, that'll determine what type of cheese I make. And again, when I'm doing the recipes for the cheese, how much of the bacterial culture I will add to the milk. Looks great. The start of the season, it's practically cheese coming out. It's just so rich and, and creamy. Ryan has just started milk production about two weeks ago. So we just actually began collecting this milk last week for the start of the season. So you haven't been making cheese with his milk since last summer? No, we finished up our last batch was at the end of December, and then he dried the goats off, and then we've just started up again about a week, actually, yes, a week ago. Yeah, so the goats breeding spread out over the course of the year, which suits us perfect. And the break in January, we won't enjoy it. Just some other of the cheeses. This is the Carrick Bond cheese, and this was made on Monday, and this is the soft goat's cheese wow. here. It's lovely. So we've had really great success with this with chefs. You know, it's, it's very versatile cheese. It's very mild. It's very lemony, sort of tangy. And then if you age it on, it develops a beautiful kind of wrinkly rind to it, and it kind of intensifies in flavor, so it's, it's great. So it's almost really creamy, soft. It's almost spreadable, sort of. It is. It is. And it, it bakes really well. It spreads really well. We'll do a tart later on, which... I I use our beetroot pickle and the carrot bone goat cheese and some sautéed onions, a little bit of puff pastry, and you've got you've got dinner sorted. Puff pastry, goat's cheese tart. It really is a classic. And all Kevin and Julie's goat's cheeses and the cow's cheese, but the goat's cheese, the soft cheese, the blue cheese, they're really, really fantastic. I tasted all of them. They're just gorgeous. So from their rural home then, I followed the soft cheese into Derry City. The light was beginning to fade and the fantastic Illuminate Festival was starting. This lights up key buildings in the city walls, historic buildings with sounds and video of Derry's history. And by the earliest cathedral in Ireland, by one of the earliest, um, since the Reformation. It was built in the 1630s and it contains artefacts from the Siege of Derry. It's an absolutely beautiful building. It's a food pop-up and the barbecue truck low and slow. And I met owner Emily Marshall there who told me about the Dairy Food Network using the cheese from Kevin and Julie and the City Council's aim to make dairy such a top food city in Ireland. So they've created the idea of the Legendary Food Network, which is made up of a whole bunch of different restaurateurs, hoteliers, producers, brewers, people who are in the food industry, retailers, and we're all committed to source five products on our menu from a 30-mile radius from the Guildhall, Mm -hmm. Um, and all of our producers are within the Dairy and Saban Council area. 
Wow. You have a food truck. I have a burger I'm about to eat. And it's got the cheesemakers I visited earlier, Dark Mountain. You've got the cheese included in it. Was that important to include a cheese that was local as well as the strategy? It tastes good, doesn't it? Yeah, they're such fantastic makers. I think all of their cheeses I have fallen in love with. <laughs> I'm a, Is cheesy a word? I don't know. There's foodies. <laughs> I'm a cheesy. Um, I really love their cheese. It's, it's really good. So knowing their family, knowing that they really care about what they're producing and how they're producing it, that transparency is really important to me. So investing in a local business where the money is going back into the economy, it's going back into their family. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, looking at the success of Belfast, the food, the restaurants, do you think dairy could become that in a couple of years? I would like to think that our food scene will be more creative, more mm. organic, I think, in our, in our nature, and a little bit more diverse for sure. We have yeah. so many different cuisines and so many ethnicities represented in the city. Yes. So I'd love to see all of those flavors and cultures come out through food. Fantastic. Yeah. Now this, the burger you've made with the dark mounted cheese is called the Drunken Goat Burger. Look at the size of it. It looks amazing. It's a new item um, that we produced for this market. We've already sold so many of them. We did a TikTok video. We did an Instagram reels and stuff like that. And we're getting nonstop requests for them, which is good. That's what oh, we want. So good. So we did the goat's cheese. We did broider gold um, Thai oil. We mm-hmm. mixed with mayonnaise to make our own Thai mayo. And then we make our own chili onion marmalade. And that's what you're tasting there. That sharpness. Oh. It's just gorgeous, and you're bringing so much into it, your own American barbecue tradition plus local producers. So this city could be a really, really exciting food destination. That's what we're hoping for. I love the city. We are going to make the city great and known for food and its producers and the hospitality. And it's so important, especially in time now, bolstering the hospitality industry. So if we can do it here then we're going we're gonna to be okay. Very yeah. good, very good. Great stuff. It's so very encouraging to see dairy emerging with such intent from what has no doubt been such a tough few years since the pandemic. Suzanne Campbell, thank you very much for that. Uh, you're listening to Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. We'll take a break. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers. Welcome back. Now, the objectives of the new Common Agricultural Policy, which is, of course, funded by public money, must include for the first time measures to increase the participation of women and improve the gender balance and equality in farming. Well, Mary Curtin is a beef farmer from Limerick and she's been researching female farm ownership in Ireland as part of her PhD in the University of Limerick. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Mary, uh, you've been managing farming, as I say, while doing your PhD, which is quite a feat in itself. But you found so many sort of legal and taxation barriers to female farm ownership here. But farmers confided in you that for many of them, it comes down to the surname. Can you explain this? Yes, so it seems from my own research that the surname is still a huge issue in that people feel that the name is linked with the place and with the land and it still seems to be one of the primary reasons for favouring a son over a daughter rather than basing the decision on interest and ability. So the idea that the surname, the land should stay within, we'll say Murphy, the name Murphy, and that go, go, goes, goes down then through the male line. Yes, exactly. They seem to think it's their legacy and that once, if it goes to a daughter and she gets married and the surname changes, that then it's no longer the Murphy land. Now, 88 
percent of farmers are men in Ireland, just 12% uh, are women, even though a quarter of people working on farms are women. You've just finished uh, researching the reasons for this as part of the re- of research um, commissioned by the Women in Agriculture Stakeholders Group. Can you tell us a little bit about that research and what you found? Yes, yeah, so I was delighted to be asked to conduct this research for them and delighted to be involved. And some of the key findings were that the biggest challenges in terms of a larger percentage of the women compared to the men pointed to family rivalry for land, managing child support and lack of encouragement as the biggest challenges for their careers in agriculture. And it also still seems that over a quarter of the male respondents said they had received young farmer tax relief where in comparison to just 7% of the women. And then also in terms of applying for loans, the men were much more likely in the survey and also they were more likely to have applied for higher value loans than the women who answered. And and what you know in conclusion when after you did your research, what can be done about this? Well, I suppose there's different types you can bring in incentives, but again, people spoke about them in a the survey, and some were very much in favour and felt they were a necessity and long overdue, while others felt that maybe they actually weren't the best idea. But that's just one type of policy you could bring incentives like that. There's also then, I suppose, more succession planning and things like that. But we can influence policy and hopefully even just discussing this here today will mean that people at home in terms of adding their partners to the title in terms of if there's a son and a daughter going out farming this morning that let's say they're both as an equal opportunity to inherit. So the the conversations are equal between sons and daughters. The assumption always has been, I suppose, that it's the son that will take over the land and the farm rather than the daughter. Yes. And I suppose just to treat them equally, to base a decision on interests and ability rather than gender would be important for everyone involved. And we're also joined this morning uh, by Mona O'Donoghue-Concannon, a farmer and member of the Women in Agriculture Stakeholders Group who commissioned the research. Good morning, Mona. Hi, how are you? Uh, Mona, when we think about the new common agricultural policy and then we think about the research here, how significant are the results of this survey, do you think? Absolutely. Um, the research that we we have commissioned um has completely agreed with the what we've been finding on the ground and it is very we've used our cap policy for we we submitted our first um submission this year after 6 months being in order and, and we had found all this but the fact that we have got Mary now to confirm what we have been finding on the ground it is uh, really groundbreaking for us and you say that 70,000 women are involved in farming, but 60 to 65,000 aren't properly recognised. That's right. Um, uh, this morning, there's about 70,000 women going out, helping their partners, their families, their uh, labour unit on the farm. But unfortunately for the department, there's only 12% of us recognised, which is quite um, stark. But for us, a farmer is a farmer, and we just want to get the recognition out there that we're all equal and that we're still doing the same work, that um, everyone's doing the same work and we we're just want to get a little bit more recognition for these women because they're, they're really invisible when it comes to the Department of Agriculture. Because you've been farming for 12 years, but you say you are one of those invisible women. I am indeed. I, I go out, get out every morning, um, but it, it causes big problems for me when I have to discuss things on the farm with the Department of Agriculture. My my herd number is actually in my husband's name, so I am invisible because I don't have a green cert because my circumstances didn't let me do a green cert when I was younger. But I think 
there is um, a great opportunity now for Mr. McConnell to meet us. We have a good group of people together and I suppose I'm inviting him today to put our, uh, I suppose, an invitation out to us to meet us and try and see if there's an incentive. Um, one of the things we'd like is maybe that the fact that experience might be recognised instead of having a green search, that if we can prove we're 10 or 12 years on the farm, that we have life experience, that that might help to get us into partnership or stuff like that. And to that. bring more visibility, indeed. Exactly. Um, Mary Curtin, best of luck with your PhD uh, and your farming as well. Uh, and I know that uh, the work of the Women in Agriculture Stakeholders Group can be followed on Twitter at Women's Agri Group. So you can follow what they're up to there. Uh, but Mary Curtin in Limerick and Mona O'Donoghue-Concannon of the Women in Agriculture Stakeholders Group. But thank you both very much indeed this morning. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, when April Higgins first caught sight of a Swiss breed of sheep called the Valley Blacknose, she knew she wanted them in her life. They are friendly, they are fluffy, and until now they are a rarity in the Irish countryside. April grew up showing cattle in County Mayo, but recently moved to Askeaton in Limerick to her fiancé's Aylmer's family farm, from where she started to breed the uh, Valley Blacknose. Reporter Mary O'Donnell went to April's farm to meet her as she prepared her flock for their first shearing of the year, with a special treat in hand. We're probably living the dream, to be honest, without even realising it. My dream was always to own a Valley Black Nose, and that quickly spiralled, and now I have a nice small flock of them. So we're waiting on Ivan Scott, um, a friend and a, a sheep shearer, to arrive this morning, and Ivan is going to shear our adult Valley Black Nose. And it strikes me now that it's early March, it's quite an unusual time to be doing shearing. Yes. So with the Valley Blacknose breed, they have a very fast growing fleece and they grow a huge amount of wool. So here in Ireland, um, a typical lowland sheep fleece could weigh in or around 2.2 to 2.5 kilos. Valley Blacknose sheep grow four kilos of wool every year. So they actually need to be shorn twice a year. So are they valuable in that sense that you get more wool from them? You might think so, but unfortunately that's not the case. Here in Ireland, wool isn't worth very much at the moment. Um, you're talking in around 20 cent a kilo for lowland wool um, and for the coarser kind of mountain scotch type wool you're talking as low as 5 cent a kilo. The Valley Blacknose are no different. You know it's pure white wool, it's beautiful but unfortunately it is a coarse wool so again there is no specific market for it. Oh my goodness, we've rounded the corner and here they are. Yes. So in here we have our batch of January lambs and here is our one-year-old Bodicea and I think she hears the biscuits. So I'm just going to give her a morning treat. These sheep, I don't know how I came across it but I just almost by accident realised that they absolutely love ginger nut biscuits. Um, I have tried them with digestives and with cream crackers but no, it's always the ginger nuts. Um, I have a full pack here now, so we'll see how long these last. She's taking a good old bite there. And we have a little lamb coming over for a biscuit as well. <laughs> this is little Jimmy. They just love human interaction. He's actually very much like a little dog. He's kind of gone down on his front uh, hooves a little bit so that you can kind of give him a good back rub, like really get in there. Some of the really, really friendly lambs will come over to you and they'll nibble at your hair and they'll be jumping up on top of you. They're just really, really playful, which is quite unique for sheep. And to describe them, I suppose teddy bear really comes to mind at the moment. 
So yes, they have a woolly black face uh, with white coming down over their eyes. Both male and females have spiral horns and on their knees they have two black knee patches and they have the same black patches on their hocks behind them and then they have four black boots. Um, so as you can see they're trying to come out of the pen on top of us because they know we have the biscuits. So we're just going to go into the next shed here Mary where I have some of my senior, my adult Valley Black Nose housed. And here's uh, one of our stars, Mr. Iggy. Iggy is our homebred ram. All of these sheep are from full Swiss bloodlines, um, which is something we, I suppose, pride ourselves on here. It makes us quite unique um, within the breed here in Ireland. So here in front of us, we have my ram, Brandy. Um, and as you can see, Brandy's getting it hard to see at the moment, so it's definitely time for him to be shorn. Yeah, his hair there is coming over the eyes and he's looking so woolly. I would just love to give him a big cuddle there. He's, but you know, he's looking very regal as well with his big curly horns. So here's Ivan. Yeah, he's just arrived actually. Hello! So exciting! <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Ivan! How are you? Good, you well? Good, thanks, good. So Ivan, you've come here this morning with a job to do. I think there's a few Wallace uh, Black Nose this year. <laughs> I've shorn uh, quite a few of them in Switzerland, yeah. So I, I've actually never shorn any in Ireland before, so it's very exciting. So you, when you're grabbing this, this sheep coming towards us now, you're kind of... Just twisting the neck a little bit and she'll drop. So she's struggling a little bit, but Ivan, ah, you have her under control and you're pulling her up and she's kind of sitting now on her hunkers. You've her head cradled in your arms. So at the moment he's shearing Ruby. Ruby is actually in lamb. She's going to be a first time lammer. She was scanned with twins about two weeks ago, which is great. I'm also excited to see how maybe pregnant she does look underneath all of that beautiful wool. It's important that you stay on the skin so you get all the wool off in one go and you're not chopping it up in half. So this is the jumper Mary that um, was made out of five of our very own Valley Black Nose fleeces. The lady who created it, not only did she wash and clean and prepare the wool and spin it into yarn, but she knit it in the most amazing patterns. And on the back here you can even see she knit on the black patches to match that of the Valley Black Nose black patches. You really blend in if you were hunkered down with them because we see the black knees on the Valley Black Nose and there you have the black elbow pads. You know, it's, it's so fun and exciting to have something just so sustainable made out of the fleeces. Yeah, like grow your own jumper, kind of. Grow your own jumper, yep. <laughs> Ruby has a very beautiful fleece for a Valley Black Nose. She has that real gorgeous, crimpy wool. Ivan is about halfway through shearing her. So at the moment, we are seeing her half bare. She will lamb in the middle of April. Yeah, because I think before it would be hard to guess, they all look so woolly. It would be hard to say one was pregnant and the other wasn't, but now we're beginning to see that tummy there. Yeah, she definitely looks in lamb, all right. <laughs> look at her go. She's got twins in there. 
April Higgins, looking forward to new life on the farm. Thank you, Mary McDonnell from Grey Heron Media for that report. And you can follow April's adventures on her website, bowpeepvalleyblacknose.ie. They are quite a sight to see. Now, we turn to an issue now that in so many ways remains hidden in rural Ireland. Domestic abuse and violence. The number of people seeking help has increased dramatically in the last year and there is not a corner of the country that is free from the scourge of it. So what are the challenges faced by those who live in rural areas who are subjected to violence in their own homes and are there enough supports available to them? Tara Farrell heads up Longford's Women's Link, a community organisation that supports victims of rural domestic violence. Good morning, Tara, and thank you so much for joining us this Good morning. Good morning, Ella. Um, Tara, can I just start by clarifying something? When we talk about domestic violence, is it correct to say that the vast majority of perpetrators of violence are men against women? It would be fair to say, Ella. I mean, we would look at the women's aid statistics and research, and which says that one in four women in Ireland who have been in a relationship have been abused by a current or former partner. And if we look even at the statistics around femicide, 244 women have been killed since 1996 up till January this year. And in over half of the resolved cases, they were killed by a current or ex-partner. So the figures are quite stark, you know, to put things in context. Um What do we know about the prevalence of domestic violence in rural Ireland, be it on or off farm? I mean, how... Also, is it distinctly different from abuse in urban settings? It's very, very different. Um, To give you the example of Longford, where we're based, and I've no reason to believe that we are an outlier in any of this, that this will be quite typical for a lot of rural communities, we would see approximately 400 women a year. Now, that is an increase over the last couple of years with the pandemic. And over half of those would live in rural areas. But that said, Longford itself is quite a rural county. So even if they are living in a, in a town, they're often rural towns. And the experience of women living in rural areas is very, very different from women living in urban areas. So first of all, for abusers, it's much easier to isolate and to control their victims. And for those of us, I live in a rural area myself, there's huge positives. We often have this lovely romantic notion of living in rural Ireland. And it is, there's always... Close-knit you know, community. Close-knit community. Yeah. And that's lauded as something really positive, which it is. But sometimes when you flip it on its head, that strong community spirit and that close-knit atmosphere can actually be an enabler of abuse because it allows the abuser to continue, to continue his control, to continue his abuse. We know in rural Ireland there's reduced access to services, um, things like maybe poorer mobile phone coverage, broadband and so on. There are more dangers, particularly in farms, uh, you know, implements and farm machinery that you and I may see as just part of the normal running order of a farm can in the hands of abuser be very, very dangerous. Um, And then, you know, we've heard from from previous uh, callers this morning about the emotional attachment to land and, you know, the the, um, implications then for women in terms of farm ownership and the financial abuse that that can go on. So there's a, a wide range of issues, like transport is a huge one. The length of time it can take for a woman to seek a service. We also know that um, rural women are less likely to access services and older women in particular living in rural communities are also less likely, which is really concerning. And as always, it is, you know, thanks to, to brave and courageous women who tell their stories that we can understand this. You hear from these people. What are they saying to you? We hear quite a lot from women who talk about the very th- that close-knit 
community that they live in. They talk, they say things like, you know, my uh, my parents know what's going on, but my father is older and he needs to rely on the neighbours and on the locals to help him out on the farm. So he's not going to, to block him out. He's not going to isolate him. Um, we hear that um, within communities, people are very, very reluctant to isolate an abuser, you know, if they need him for the silage, they're not going to do that. We also know that if a woman is seen maybe getting a taxi from the house, if a Garda car pulls up outside the house, you know, everybody knows about it very, very quickly. I mean, what one woman has said to us that, you know, and these are her words, that it wasn't an easy time when she went to court to get an order. It was embarrassing. She had to ask a neighbour for a lift into the town. And what she said was that everyone knows when the Gardaí have called to my house and the location of where we lived, I also feel gave him the freedom to do what he liked to me. So that's really, really stark. She was very, very isolated, very, very alone. You know, and she spoke about the abuse that when it got, you know, increasingly bad, her, her screams got louder and louder. She would say she'd look out the window and all that she could see that could hear her screams were the green fields and that she was so isolated and nobody ever came. She would bring her children, you know, walking the fields to keep them safe. And she was happy at that stage, knowing that they were away from him. And you said earlier that older rural women are particularly vulnerable as well. They are particularly vulnerable and, you know, particularly when we think about things like financial abuse. A lot of older women, they have worked on the farm, they have reared the children, they haven't worked outside the home, they don't have access to independent income. So, you know, one older woman had said to us that, you know, if she was to leave, where would she go? Where is suitable, in her words, for an elderly woman and what would happen to the animals? So there's huge concern, there's huge worry and there's huge huge isolation for women. Um, There was a UK report in 2019 by the National Rural Crime Network and and I've read it, there are some really stark findings there. Rural victims are half as likely to report their abuse to others. They cannot access support services. The policing response is inadequate. They live in a society, close-knit communities, as you mentioned, that can sometimes unknowingly protect the perpetrators and they feel isolated, unsupported, unprotected in this kind of rural hell that they're living in. Um, Is there any reason to think that it is different, different here? There isn't really. I mean, I, having read that report, can recognise an awful lot of what, what is being said in it. And it talks about that hidden underbelly of domestic violence and, you know, the barriers of transport, the access to services, the, the very structures in rural communities that a lot of us think are so positive but often facilitate abuse in plain sight. And do we need more research? Do we need some research? We absolutely do need some research. I mean, we're starting to gather very anecdotal data ourselves as as one service, but we do need much more widespread research into this. Uh, From a policy perspective, what supports do you think are needed to help those who are subjected to abuse and violence in rural Ireland? Well, we've seen that the draft strategy uh, on uh, domestic and sexual and gender-based violence is now in its in, in its consultation stage. And there's a lot of positives in that. But again, the devil will be in the detail around implementation. Resources are key, multi-annual funding, resources around services, but also a community-led response to this, because this is happening in our communities. And we might not like to, to, to think that it is, but, but it absolutely is. And we need to adopt that zero-tolerance culture for, for domestic abuse in rural communities. So we need, um, you know, a multi-pronged approach because it's such a complex issue. There are there are women listening this morning who might recognise their own situations in, in what you have described. What can they do? What I would recommend is that they look at the Safe Ireland website and look at wherever they're living. There are support services within their counties and they are listed on the website. They can also call the Women's Aid National Free Phone Helpline on one 800 341 900 
And I suppose also the abusers, the perpetrators of violence are listening, some of them right now. What is your message to them? My message is that they would stop what they're doing. Unfortunately, a lot of the uh, perpetrators, and if they are listening in this morning, will not recognise that in themselves because of the the uh, the sense of control and power that they have asserted over their family. Well, Tara Farrell, thank you very much indeed for coming in this morning. Um, and if you need to talk to someone about the issues raised, there is a list of helplines on safeireland.ie or uh, the National Helpline for Women's Aid, as you say, is 1800 341 900. Uh, just briefly, I mean, what do you think neighbours could do, the community, the close-knit communi- community can do to support? What we would always say, if you suspect a relative or a neighbour or a friend is experiencing domestic violence, there is that urge within us, that instinct that you want to go in and help and get her out of there. But we have to remember that she has been managing this situation for a very, very long time. We would always say to follow her lead. She knows what is safe for her and for her family and just keep up the contact with her, keep up the texts, keep up the phone calls, even though she may not answer, even though you may ring her and you might hear who's that in the background. Keep the contact with her because hopefully one day she will be able to reach out. And finally, I was struck by a mention of hedge cutting. Why is that such a bad thing? Some women will tell us that they dread certain times of the year, particularly with hedge cutting because it's Things are much more visible then and that the perpetrator can see if they're leaving the house. They may then get a text saying what time they left at and what time they should be back at. So it's all about that that visibility in rural Ireland and the, the, the very structures that, as I said, a lot of us feel are very positive are the very structures that can enable abuse to continue. Tara Farrell, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and that's safeireland.ie or uh, 1800 341 900. Now, the war in Ukraine has cast a very dark shadow across the world. It is a chilling to witness the unfolding human crisis at the heart of it. But it is very positive to hear that more than €2 million Euro was raised on last night's Late Late Show to support people in Ukraine. And you can donate now at donate.redcross.ie. That is it for this week. My thanks to the producer Eileen Heron, sound engineer Mark McGrath and broadcast coordinator uh, Brian Moss. Damien will be with you next week. But to end, Monaghan poet Mary O'Donnell reads her poem which reflects on the experience of those seeking international protection in Ireland, an experience that will be shared by Ukrainian families who will be arriving on our shores. The poem is from her collection Massacre of the Birds and it's called Direct Provision and the Old Agricultural College Ghosts. Good morning. We meet on the stretch between two crossroads. Dark-haired schoolchildren sturdied in jackets and hats for the town three miles away. Their families bunked up in the old agricultural college. In this place, spirits loiter of young men who once handled sheep and cattle in pens, raising them for market to a clang of feeding buckets, disinfectant smells, the scrape of shovels in the dung-lumped byres. I've heard music from the yard in summer, the thud of a football as boys play for homelands, Albania, Moldova, Nigeria, attempting perhaps to forget half-dreamt voices on night corridors to silence a ghostly bleating and lowing at dawn as they themselves become invisible. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Pick up this week's paper to find out what the future of your farm payments will look like. 